Well, last week we began a series on the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John. The last book of the Bible. And this week we will finish out chapter 1. Then next week uh, we will cover all of chapter 2 and 3, because those, those chapters contain the letters to the seven churches. And I preached through those seven letters in 2019. And so I'm going to cover them all in one week. And uh, that will advance us to chapter 4 by two weeks from today. And when we look at those uh, seven letters, we'll be looking at them as a whole, and especially how they, what, what their role is in the book of Revelation, and what things in them most relate to the rest of the book. But today, John 1, I'm sorry, Revelation 1, 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The, chair, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, we're going to go through this this morning in four chunks. Uh, verse 9, the author, John. And then verse 10 and 12 through 16, John's vision of Jesus, the Son of Man. And then verses 17, 18, John's interaction with Jesus. And then finally, verses 11, 19, and 20, Jesus' assignment to John. So four chunks. So let's start with the first, the author, John, who is, which is uh, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
So John was being punished, apparently, for preaching the gospel by being exiled to the Greek island of Patmos, which is off the coast of Asia Minor, to present-day Turkey. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been there. Uh, You all have probably been there before, but my daughter, Michelle, and her family were actually there this summer, or this fall. Um, And that's where John was when he had this vision and wrote this book. And he says, your partner, he calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I think this is an extraordinarily telling statement. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. And the Greek here indicates that the three are to be taken as a group, as a package, not just three separate things. But here we are given this little glimpse of what life in Jesus is like. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. You're going to experience tribulation. You're going to be part of a great kingdom. And you're going to need to patiently endure The seven letters which follow this passage each end with a promise to those who conquer. You might be familiar with this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And on and on through the seven letters. Well, this is what it means to conquer. It means to, preser- to persevere through tribulation. This is how we reign as kings in Christ's kingdom. By faithfully enduring the persecutions and difficulties and hardships we each face in this world. These hardships are not the exceptions. They are the rule. They are part of the Christian life. I see nothing in the Bible which indicates that someday before the return of Christ, Christians will read this verse about how we are brothers and partners in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus and many others like it and say to themselves, I'm so glad that we no longer live in a time of persecution and mourning and suffering like Christians once did. It's always going to be that way until the Lord returns. Now this may sound defeatist, but the opposite is true. This is how we conquer. We're victorious in the same way that Jesus was victorious on the cross. Triumphing through suffering. He didn't look victorious, but the fact is through Jesus' sufferings, he was winning history's greatest victory. And so it is with the church in this age. By patiently enduring our suffering, we are being victorious. And that is what the book of Revelation is all about. The second chunk this morning is John's vision of Jesus which begins in verse 10, where he tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. 
And then skipping over to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then later, in verse 20, we're told an explanation. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, we're actually not going to be able to get to that detail today, but it's in the notes, so if you go to the website... Uh, you'll be able to, at the, after the sermon, there's a little addendum that talks about the stars in his right hand. But then he says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so here's John. He says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, uh, this means apparently that John was in a prophetic spirit. That, that is, that the Holy Spirit had come upon him in such a way that he was in God's presence and ready to receive God's prophetic message. Now, I don't have time to talk about the significance that he is said to have been in the Spirit on the Lord's day, but I want you to know that this verse is a pivotal verse in the doctrine of the New Testament Sabbath and in the biblical case for a change from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. But that's for another day. Okay, so here he is and he, turn, he hears this voice and he turns to see the voice that's speaking to him and when he turns he sees seven golden lampstands. Now the lampstand is not a big part of typical American life. But the lampstand, or also called the menorah, is very familiar to the Jewish people. Today it is the nation of Israel's national emblem. There was of course a lampstand in the Old Testament tabernacle and then in the temple. Standing on the floor about the height of a person, it had seven branches that uh, each one holding a flaming wick. And we have a picture to put. There it is. Very good. So here in John's vision, the first thing he sees in seven of these, seven lampstands, seven menorahs. And later in verse 20, we're told what these symbolize. They symbolize the seven churches. See, he's talked already about seven churches. He's going to write letters to seven churches. And there's seven lampstands, each representing one of those seven churches, okay? So each lamp, lampstand represents one church, and the branches of each lampstand uh, presumably represent the people of that church. Just like each branch of each lampstand is a, uh, I'm sorry, in each person is a flame. You remember that at Pentecost, when the Spirit came and rested on each person in the form of a tongue of fire, it was just like this. Each 
person had a flame of fire on him, just like these branches of the lampstands are all lit with fl a flame. So each one represents a church, and each branch represents a person in the church. And the fact that there's seven, remember what we talked about seven last week, the seven represents all of the group. And so the seven churches represent all churches. And the, the seven branches of each church represent all the people in that church. Not just seven important people, but all the people. And so here we have this image where uh, we see seven branches, all the churches, with all the people in those churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Of course, Jesus called himself the son of man more than any other title. And so, of course, this is talking about Jesus. But this vision of the son of man also ought to make us think about Daniel's vision of the son of man in Daniel 7. Which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, when I quote things like this, I'm not saying that John got his vision or his words by reading Daniel. I'm saying that in using, and this is important, in using this language, the Holy Spirit is not just giving John a fresh new revelation. He's also directing us to connect what vision John is having and what John is describing with previous visions. It's like as we walk through the book of Revelation, God turns on lights to many other passages in the scripture to help us make connections and help us to see that so much is about what the book of Revelation is about, not just John's vision. Now, one of the advantages of this is that these other passages help us to have, get additional insight into the things John's telling us in his revelation. And let me give you an illustration of this. In this passage in Daniel that I just read, we have the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and present, being presented before him and being given the nations of the earth. Well, a few verses earlier in Daniel 7, 9, and 10, the Ancient of Days is described in the vision. In the language of divinity, he's sitting on a throne, there's fire all around him, his hair is white to reflect the fact that he's ancient, that he's always been. But in John's description, in, in Revelation 1, the Son of Man has fire and white hair. Didn't in, in Daniel 7. So what's the point? Well, in Daniel, it has not yet been made clear that the Son of Man is also the Son of God. But now in Revelation, we see that this Son of Man 
is also described in the language of divinity, in the language of the ancient of days. He has white hair. He has fire all around him. And we see that he himself is God as well. We see this in 14 and 15. The hairs of his head were white, white with, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And that's the language of the, what the, God's voice is like over and over again in the scriptures. This is Jesus. But it's not like the Jesus of the Gospels. Well, wait a minute. Maybe it is. Maybe it is in one place. How about the Mount of Transfiguration? Where Jesus was transfigured and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light in Matthew chapter 17. That's sort of similar to this, isn't it? In both cases, he's a man. And yet he's shining with the glory of God. Here in his vision, John sees Jesus, not in his humble earthly state, but in his glorified heavenly state, though still human, with all these signs of divinity. And where is he standing? He's standing among his lampstands, that is, among his churches. And this is exactly what the world needs to know. Not only that there's a God who made us and who rules the universe and has given us his law and who will one day come and judge us all, but that there is a God-man who came to earth in love and then ascended to heaven where he dwells in unspeakable glory and that he dwells even now among his churches. John goes on to describe this son of man as clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. Now what the son of man is doing isn't explicitly given to us here, but is clearly implied by two things. His attire and his proximity to lampstands. If you saw a photo of an operating room with a person in full surgical attire and mask and scalpel. You don't need to be told what that person's doing. And that's like this picture here. A man in a long robe with a golden sash standing beside lampstands would have made any Jew think about the priest tending to the lampstand in the temple. You put the second picture up now. There we go. You see, priests did a number of things in the temple. But one of their jobs was to attend to the lampstand. To trim the wicks. To keep it filled with oil. To relight any lights that had gone out. To remove any lamps that wouldn't burn any longer. And now Jesus is the priest in this vision of John tending to the lampstands like a gardener tends to his garden or like you know you if you have a wood stove in the winter you have to tend to your wood stove or like all of us have to maintain our cars he's 
keeping an eye on it, making sure it's functional, making sure it's looking okay and doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so that's what this vision is. The high priest, Jesus, he's not only hanging around with his churches, he's tending them, he's maintaining them, he's fixing them, he's cultivating them. But originally, in the Old Testament, the priest tended only one lampstand, not seven. What's with the seven lampstands? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, God had only one people, by and large, the Jews. But now in the New Testament, the salvation of God has been opened up to all nations and peoples. Again, that's why there's seven lampstands. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So what's he doing there? We know he's interceding for his people there. We're told that several places in the New Testament. We know he's preparing a place for that for us. And he, he told his disciples that before he left. But what else is Jesus doing right now? Well, this vision tells us. Jesus is in the midst of his lampstands, his churches, maintaining them. And that brings us to the sword. John tells us in verse 16 that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The vision then is Jesus the high priest tending to his churches. And of course priests who did this work had special tools with which to work on the lampstands. And so if Jesus is standing among his lampstands to maintain them, what tool does he have to use? He has a double, sharp double-edged sword, which is, of course, his holy word. That's why it's coming out of his mouth. Ephesians 6.17 refers to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. So Jesus uses this sword, which comes out of his mouth. With his word, he affirms, he corrects, he instructs, he warns. All in order to fit his churches to do what they're supposed to do. To shine as lights in a dark world. That's why the word of God is so important to us as believers and to us as churches. The word of God is God's tool to do his work in each believer and in each church. What makes this obvious is that this is the passage which leads us right into the letters to the seven churches. And what do we see in the seven, seven letters? But Jesus, by means of his word, affirming, instructing, exhorting, assuring, correcting his churches. This is what the seven letters are. It's the Son of Man walking among his lampstands, molding them, transforming them, enriching them, refining them, perfecting them by means of his word. Now, 
Jesus has not written Gainesville Presbyterian Church a special letter. But he has written for us many letters. And he wants us to use them, to encourage us through them, to challenge us, to convict us, to instruct us. For all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the churches of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3. The third chunk of this that I'd like to address is John's interaction with Jesus in verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, for me, it's easy to miss the drama of the Bible. I read about what John saw, but I don't imagine the emotions that he felt very readily. I notice the strangeness of what he's just saying and the, the puzzle of it, but I'm not struck by the experience of it. But it says that John saw this vision and fell down as though dead. And this is the pattern through scripture. Whenever people come face to face with God. And it's safe to say that we would have responded in a similar way if we'd been there. But we don't have to see a vision to be gripped by God's holiness. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet who believe. In John 20, 29. And we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Whether, not just if we've had a special vision of Jesus. But I love that the Lord lays his hand upon John and says to him, fear not. And why do we not need to fear? Fear not, he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John did not need to fear because the scary one is also the loving one. And the sovereign one. And the good one. And the one who redeems. And the one who delivers. And when we see scary things on the horizon. Or have nightmares which frighten us. Our daddy puts his hand on us as well and says, don't be afraid. Everything's okay. I've got this. The last little chunk is just Jesus' assignment for John in verse 11 and 19. He says to John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches. And then in verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are not to take place, and those that are to take place after this. In these verses we see 
how God is behind not just the vision, but the what we call the inscripturation of the vision, the writing down of the vision. And this is the way it was with the Old Testament prophets. God gave them visions and messages and they gave them to the people but then God also told them to write it down and that's why we have the Old Testament it's also the way it was with Jesus this is also the way it was with the apostles God tells the messenger what to say and the messenger says it but then he makes sure it gets inscripturated it's all part of God's process of giving us his word the New Testament is not an accident. It's not like a bunch of things got written and then the church hundreds of years later decided this is God's word. You can see here that this is what God intended all along. Write this down. He commanded that his revelation be put into scripture form. That's what scripture means, written down. Jesus even talked about it. And the apostles were aware of it as they wrote the written word of God is the tool of Jesus whereby he fuels us, he trims us, he cleans us, he polishes us, he straightens us when we're crooked, he brightens us. This happens to us as individuals, of course, but also to us as a church. And there's a holy process which takes place when God speaks his word to his people gathered in his presence, the teacher, of course, is flawed, and his flaws easily become obstacles. And it is his duty to seek to rid himself of things which make it hard for the hearers to hear. But the hearers have a duty as well. A duty to try to look past the flaws, to discern the perfect voice of God speaking through the very imperfect spokesman. It's not enough to spot mistakes and blunders or confusions in the sermon. One day we will give an account before God as to how well we listened to what he said to us through very fallible messengers. And so we work, part of our work, is to get the message in to our hearts. And then there's a second part of it, and that's to get the message out. To spread the word. This message that God has bestowed upon us through such extraordinary means, to get it out so others might get it in as well. Again, look at the notes if you want to see the uh, more thoughts on the seven stars, but we didn't have time to get to that. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus is among his churches. Even, Lord, when it seems like churches are just purely human institutions, we know that it's not true, that true churches are places where Jesus dwells and where he uses his word 
to sanctify, to purify. And we pray that that work would be done in us. We pray as individuals and as a church that you would not just let us be who we are or let us go our own way, but that, Lord, you would show us and give us hunger to see what your will is for us. For we, Lord, we don't want to be people who do our own will. We know that your will is far better. Help us to be yielding and submissive to you and to trust fully in you. And Lord, now as we come to the table that our Lord has commanded us to celebrate, we come rejoicing that you have given us yourself. And we celebrate the cross where you gave us your body and your blood that we might be forgiven. And we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, as we come to draw near to Jesus and realize that he is right here with us. We pray in his great name.